All right, well, this, uh, this morning, what I want to do is just continue taking you guys on that deep dive of uh, the biblical covenants that you've been on over the last number of weeks. Uh, and this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to hone in on the covenant that God makes with Israel's king, David. Uh, now, before we get started, is there anybody who wants to take a shot at telling us what a biblical covenant is. So if someone were to ask you, what is a covenant in the Bible, how would one of you try to answer that question? What's a covenant in the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, anybody else want to answer that or help add to that? You said a binding promise that God makes to another party, another person. Anybody else want to add to that? All right. I think that's, that's, that pretty much hits it on the head, right? So if, if you wanted a helpful definition of a biblical covenant, it's, it's, uh, it echoes exactly what we heard there. So a covenant is a formal agreement between two or more persons, two or more persons, and it usually involves requirements, promises, conditions that are to be kept if the covenant is going to remain intact. Right? So it's a formal agreement between two or more persons, uh, God and another party, and it usually involves requirements, promises, conditions that both parties are to keep if the covenant is going to be intact. Right? And covenants in the Bible matter because God defines and structures his relationship with his people according to these covenants that he makes with them. So when we read the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, one of the things that we're going to find is that God reveals his plans for salvation over time through these covenants. Right? And ultimately, these covenants and this plan of salvation is going to lead to Jesus Christ. So think of the covenants in the Old Testament then kind of like mile markers letting you know where you are on your journey, right? In the same way when you get in your car and you're driving somewhere a long distance, going on a road trip, mile markers kind of mark out where you are on that trip um, or, or what direction you're headed, how much longer you have to go until you get to your destination. It's kind of like what the covenants uh, are doing in the Old Testament. Or you can, you can think of the covenants kind of, like, uh, kind of like the backbone that's holding up your body right now, right? Each one of these covenants is, is like an individual vertebrae in the backbone on which the whole skeletal structure of the scriptures hang and build upon, right? We need these covenants to hold, the, hold up our Bibles. And there are six covenants that God makes with his people in the Old Testament. You can see those uh, on your handout right there. All right, so in the covenant... With Adam, uh, you guys saw that God commanded Adam and Eve to work and to tend the garden, uh, to not touch the tree, and, and yet what do they do? They disobey, uh, and God promises then to send one who will rule over creation and crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. And then in the covenant with Noah, uh, God kind of presses the reset button uh, on the world after massive sin spreads uh, and then he promises to never destroy the earth again uh, like the flood. And then in the covenant with Abraham, right, God call, calls a, a holy nation 
out of the family of Abraham. And then he promises worldwide blessing through kings that will come from Abraham's children. Uh, and then with Israel, right, which you guys, y'all thought about that last week, right? God gives the nation his law, and he promises them blessing for obedience and judgment if they disobey. And then all of this is going to build into the covenant that God makes with David, uh, where God promises a kingdom uh, that comes from David's line, and that kingdom and that king will last forever. Uh, and then, of course, all this is going to lead into the new covenant, uh, which you all are going to think about in a few weeks after you get back from Thanksgiving break. But this morning, we're going to consider what God has to say about his covenant with David, this this no-name shepherd boy uh, from the tiny town of Bethlehem uh, who becomes one of the most pivotal persons in the entire story um, of the Bible. So David's crucial. We've got to understand uh, what this covenant that God makes with him means for the rest of the Bible. Um, but before we get there, let me give you just some backstory on how we get to the covenant with David. Um, so Moses dies after the covenant with Israel is made. Uh, and the next guy up after Moses is some dude named Joshua, right? And then Joshua, he leads the Israelites into the promised land. Uh, and at first they have great success, right? Things seem to be going really well, uh, but then things take a huge turn for the worse, right? Israel begins to falter. Uh, and because, uh, because of that, she's not keeping her end of of the covenant, and she's not fully obeying God's law. And after Joshua dies, uh, the Bible portrays Israel's descent into spiritual anarchy uh, and, and disarray in the book of Judges. And in Judges, the Israelites descend deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness and disobedience, and the message we hear in that book is loud and clear. Right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends, the cliffhanger of Judges. So the covenant that God made with Israel uh, has not brought life. And it's not because God has failed, it's because the people have failed it, right? Instead uh, of bringing life, Israel's disobedience brings death and disarray just as God said would happen if they disobeyed the law. So Israel needs a, they need spiritual reversal, right? They need a, a, a heart transplant. They need a new heart. And even more, we begin to hear a new cry from the people. Israel needs a king. They need someone to reestablish God's rule and God's reign, someone through which all those promises that God makes to Adam, Noah, Abraham, and the nation will, will come true. And so thankfully, uh, this doesn't surprise God, right? A king like this was always God's plan, right? In the very beginning, God made Adam to function like a king and rule over creation, but Adam failed. Right? You, guys, you guys thought about that in the covenant with Adam. Then God promises Abraham that kings would come from him. Right? And then even before Israel entered the promised land, God outlines a profile and job description 
uh, of this king that's going to come years and years later for the nation. Moses and Joshua, both of those guys, they kind of foreshadowed that king. They were king-like, but they weren't the king. Okay, so you can see how all of this is already, God's already planning for this king to come. All right, but in the story of Ruth, uh, which is a book in the Bible located between Judges and First and Second Samuel, um, we see anticipation for this king growing. That book tells the story uh, of this lowly woman who marries into an Israelite family uh, who becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's great king, David. Right? And then First and Second Samuel are going to tell the story of God's kind of crowning or coronation of David as Israel's king. Um, and then First and Second Samuel, we see that, that Israel, the nation, is going uh, from having no king to having a great king. And we find that Israel's hope uh, and the world's now rests upon uh, David's throne. So David's story um, climaxes in 2 Samuel 7, right? So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to spend some time there. 2 Samuel 7. So 2 Samuel 7 is one of the Bible's most important chapters. It's one of the most important chapters you're going you're to find in your Bible. Every chapter in the Bible is important. Every chapter in the Bible is inspired by God, but 2 Samuel 7 kind of stands out. So in this chapter, we discover how all of the covenants that have come, uh, come before start to kind of converge in the person of David. So just like all roads uh, used to lead to ancient Rome, right, now all of the roads in these Old Testament covenants uh, are leading to David. So let's look down at uh, the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. Can I get a volunteer to read? We're going to read the whole thing. It's long, but I think it's really important for you guys to see this. So can I get a volunteer to read um, verses 1 to 17 and then someone to read verses 18 to 29? We'll break it up in half. All right, 1 to 17. Anybody want to do 18 to 29? All right, Alex.
right, thanks guys. Um, okay, so you can see you can see the kind of the basic breakdown of that passage uh, on your handout there. All right, so kind of the first breakdown is just David's plan, and that's what you're going to find in verses one to three of Second Samuel seven. David's plan, and here David's passion for the Lord uh, kind of reaches its peak. His its peak. All right, he's sitting around the palace, uh, kind of comfortably, just resting from the threat of his enemies when suddenly he's just struck by the disparity of the whole thing, right? The human king lives in this lush palace. David's, David's living large, right? But the Lord lives in a tent, right? So David wants to build a house, a temple uh, of worship for God's name. And so he tells his plans to the prophet Nathan. And at first, Nathan commends David's decision. Right? Sure that, that such a desire is the Lord's will. And so he encourages David uh, to get busy building uh, the Lord a house. But the Lord comes to Nathan in a dream and then just totally blows David's plans kind of straight out of the water. Right? And, then, and then that moves us into the second, the second part of the passage, right? God's promise. God's promise, verses 4 to 17. And these verses make up the actual covenant that God makes with David itself. So here David learns uh, that he won't be building a house for the Lord. Uh, his son Solomon will build the temple. Instead, what, what the Lord is going to do is he's going to build a house for David, a royal dynasty that will never end. Uh, and this is, this is a remarkable passage and a massive plot point in that storyline of the scripture. And we're going to come back to it in just a second. And the third, the third section of, uh, of 2 Samuel 7 is David's prayer. David's prayer. So this is how David responds to the promise that God makes to him. And this is verses 18 to 29. Uh, and here David is, is stunned. He's almost speechless because of the unexpected and the extraordinary graciousness of the Lord to him. Right, you can hear that in verses 18 and 20. Uh, so just imagine David's situation here. Right? He was a nobody, the youngest of his father's sons, the, the runt of the litter, uh, a shepherd boy uh, from a nowhere town. Right? He's a fugitive who spent much of his life on the run uh, from Saul, the king before him. Uh, because Saul was actually trying to kill David. And now suddenly the God of the universe is saying to David, I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring one day. Your, your children are going to be a blessing to the entire world. So no wonder David's uh, prayer is one of praise. No wonder he responds the way he does. Okay, so that's, that's the basic breakdown of, of 2 Samuel 7. But I want us to look a little, little more closely uh, at the covenant itself in verses, verses 4 to 17. And then I want us to see how, um, how God's word actually connects these promises to the previous covenants that you guys have already been, uh, been thinking about. So let's, let's pick it up, pick up the story in verse, verse 4. Verse 4, let me read these to you again. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in, in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Israel saying, why have you not build, built me a house of cedar? So what the Lord is, is basically saying here in these verses is, hey, David, thank you. I'm very honored. That's sweet of you that you want to build me a house, but I don't really need one. Right? I've, I've never asked anyone to build me a house. And actually, it's been my plan from the beginning to move with my people in this tabernacle. So in other words, what, what God is saying to David is, hey, David, I actually don't need you to advance my plans. I don't, I don't need you to build a great name for myself. He doesn't need David to build him a house in order uh, to build a great name for himself as God. Right, so David wants to exalt the Lord by building him a house of worship. But, but actually what the Lord does is he's the one who exalts David, right? Moving him from the pastures of Bethlehem to the palace in Jerusalem. And he makes this shepherd boy a prince over the people of Israel. All right, now verses 9 to 16, what comes after this initial promise, uh, these, are, these are key verses. These are just huge, huge verses. All right, so in verse 9, we're told that, that David's greatness has always depended upon the Lord's presence with him. Right? It's the Lord who lifts up. It's the Lord who blesses, sustains, and delivers David. And then look at what God promises David. All right, so verse 9. Right? He's going to make his name great. Verses 10 and 11, God's going to give David and his people land and peace. Verse 11, he's going to make David a house, right? which means he's, he's going to establish a royal dynasty with David so that David's son will succeed him as king. Verse 12, right? and then this son will be the one who builds the temple, and his kingdom will never in verse 13. And if this son or his son's sin, the Lord will discipline, but never remove his steadfast love from him. Verses 14 and 15. So a descendant from David's, uh, a descendant of David's is always going to sit on Israel's throne, right? This covenant, it will never be removed. It will, it will never be revoked from David's family line. Ultimately, a king from David will always be ruling over God's people, and that's what we see in verse 16. Okay, so that's, that's 2 Samuel 7. And why is all of this such a big deal? What, why does this matter at all, and what is the connection to all those other covenants that have come before? Well, first, in, in God's covenant with Adam, uh, we see that the rule over the world that was originally given to, Dave, to Adam is going to be realized through a king from David's line. Right? So David was called to be all that Adam was supposed to be, right? a faithful son to his father. Right? This is, this, and this is the same way that we see God describing uh, his relationship with, with David in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 14. Right? It's 
the same father-son language we see. So he says he's a father, God says he's a father, and that David and his descendants will be his sons. So like Adam is identified as God's individual son, and he takes on Israel's role um, as her representative to the, to the world, so does David. Right? David's identified uh, with the same language as Adam. So that means that all the kings that come from David then uh, are to act like God the Father as a faithful and obedient son. And then ultimately, they're going to bring God's saving rule to this world. So Adam's mission is the same mission that David and his sons have. All right, and then in his covenant with Abraham, God promises um, offspring, land, and blessing uh, that would be fulfilled through uh, the succession of kings. So if you remember back to Genesis 12, uh, 1 to 3, when you guys studied that, um, this is the way, listen to the way that God's, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there um, or just listen to me read it. Listen to the way that God um, puts the promises to Abraham in 12, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So can you hear the similarities there? Hear the similarities between that uh, Genesis 12 and, and 2 Samuel 7? Making David's name great is the exact same promise that, that God makes to Abraham. Right now, listen to how God expands on that promise in Genesis 17. Right, you guys also thought about this passage a couple weeks ago. So Genesis 17, 3 to 8. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you, your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Okay, so you can hear the similarities there too uh, with 2 Samuel 7. Same promise of eternal covenant between Abraham, Abraham's children and God. The same promise of, of land, peace, prosperity. The same promise of a kingdom and kings that will descend from Abraham and bless the whole world for generations. Now, when God promised Abraham uh, that kings would come from him, it wasn't immediately clear just how important that king uh, was, was going to be in God's plan for, for salvation. We only initially there in Genesis 17 kind of see a shadow of the, the significance or the importance of this king. But in Genesis 49.10, which, which you guys also thought about, that curtain starts to get pulled back on the importance of, of the king. And we see, um, we see just how God's promises really are going to be fulfilled through this king. So Genesis 49.10, it 
right, says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Okay, so how, how are the promises to Abraham going to be fulfilled? How are they going to be realized? Well, they're going to be realized through this king that will come from the line of Judah, one of Abraham's great-grandsons. And that king will bring another king uh, who will bring another king through the line of David that's going to bless the entire world. So in other words, what's, what's happening is that God's promises to Abraham get expanded or fulfilled through David, right? God's promises to Abraham, they're getting expanded, they're getting stretched, and they're getting fulfilled through David. So the, the covenant that God establishes with Abraham way back in Genesis is starting to become a reality now in 2 Samuel 7. Right? The, Lord, the Lord's starting to kind of put flesh on those bones, Right? He promises to, to bring universal blessing through the offspring of Abraham. And now it's clear that that universal blessing is also going to involve the offspring of David. So God's going to bless the whole world. Right? That's what he promises Abraham and his covenant. Right? He's going to bless the world. And he's going to do so through a king that can never be dethroned. Right? And that's the promise that he makes to David. If you're going to just sum up what happens in Abraham, God's going to bless the world. Okay, but it's going to be done through this king that can never be dethroned that he promises to David. So that's how it relates to Abraham. What about Israel? How does it relate to the covenant with Israel that y'all thought about last week? Well, David is, he's simply the king that Israel desperately needs. Right, and God actually speaks about this king that he would give Israel uh, when he gives them the law. So flip in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter seven, 17, sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. Deuteronomy 14, sorry. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. Anybody want to read that for us? I can call on somebody. I'll do it. Aaron, you want to read that for us?
right, thanks, Aaron. So no king has been set up yet in Israel. Right? They don't have a king, and yet here is God in the law making provision for this king and giving the Israelites a profile, a picture of what their king is going to look like. So God, God promised to Abraham that kings uh, would come from his line, and then Moses, in giving the law, actually prepares the people uh, for the day when they would choose their, their king. And this king would come from Israel, and he would completely depend uh, on the Lord. He was to treasure the Lord above all else, and he was to love and obey God's word. Uh, and when the king's heart was, was in the Lord, and he was leading the people uh, in obedience to the law, the people would flourish. And this, this was true uh, in David's life. Now, it wasn't true perfectly uh, or all of the time, but but in a way that would anticipate a greater king to come, David was this, this king described in Deuteronomy 17. He was God's chosen man to rule Israel. He was, he was chosen as a forerunner or a precursor, right? Something that was pointing to this better and truer king who was going to come later on down the line. So David was, he was kind of like that pre, pre-Thanksgiving appetizer, Right, but he wasn't the actual Thanksgiving meal itself. Right, he was, I don't know what Thanksgiving appetizer there is. He was the deviled eggs, right? but he wasn't the turkey. Right, he was the chips and salsa, but he wasn't the main course. Okay, chips and salsa are really good. I love them. I can stuff myself on them uh, before a meal, but man, give me those fajitas. Right, they're so much better. Right, so David's, that's, that's kind of the movement we see here. I didn't, it's not in my notes, but you can see where I am. Um, and yet, like, what a meal we have to look forward to, right? What a meal, what a better king and a truer king, right? So like, like Adam and Abraham and Israel, David would fail uh, to keep his end of the covenant, right? For a time, Things went well under David's son, uh, King, King Solomon. But that time of peace and prosperity, it didn't last long for the Israelites. And soon the nation started spiraling into to spiritual darkness again. And yet there's, there's still hope because of God's promise of a king from David's line who will one day rule forever and never fail to obey. This is what we find in, in Psalm 72. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 72. <clears throat> this is a super important, important text. Um, Psalm 72, written by David's son Solomon, uh, and it's going to help, help us look ahead to this future king, right? to the main course that's coming, to the turkey on Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving right? It frames a picture uh, of that far greater king that we should be expecting and anticipating and looking forward to. And the first way we see that Psalm 72 described this king is that he's going to reign righteously. You can see this in your handout. He's going to reign with righteousness. So look at verses, verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. 
So this is the kind of king that sinners like us and our world desperately needs. Our world cries out for justice, but because of sin, even our best leaders are dangerous if we give them too much power. But a truly righteous kingdom awaits God's righteous king. God demands perfect obedience to his word from David and the kings to come just as he does from you and me. But none of us perfectly obey. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we need God uh, to supply this kind of king, king for us. If he doesn't, we have no hope. So that's the first thing. He's a king who will reign righteously. The second thing we see is, uh, is that he will, his reign will be eternal. Right? And if, if it was, the only thing better than a righteous king is a king who's going to reign righteously forever. Right? So look at verses five to seven. May, the fear, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. And his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. All right, so this king's rule will never end. His reign will, will stretch on and on forever and ever until the moon is no more. So no matter how faithless and disobedient David and his sons would prove to be, God's promise of an eternal king uh, through David is going to happen. God will prove faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of David and his sons. The Lord's not going to walk back on this promise. All right, that's, that's the second thing. Third thing we see is that this righteous and eternal king is also going to reign universally. He's going to reign universally. This is verses 8 to 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And may desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and, and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. All right, so this is a picture of, of total dominion over the world. Right? This king will rule the, the settlers of Catan board. Right? There is no rival force, no threats to his throne. This king, he will accomplish the, the universal rule that God first intended for humanity uh, in that covenant with David. Right? And we see this universal expectation of this king all over the Old Testament after David. Right? So think of Psalm, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is going to raise the question, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord's anointed? Right? The whole world seems to be bent against God and his king. And yet Psalm, Psalm 2, the Lord is going to answer this. The, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. For he says to his king, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Though it may not seem like it right now, but the Bible and God is saying that this king's rule, his king will rule and reign, and it will be forever for everyone, everywhere for all of time, right? It's going to be a universal kingdom. 
And then finally, uh, verses 12 to 14 in Psalm 72 are going to show us that this king is going to reign compassionately. He'll reign compassionately. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. So the rule of David's future son is going to accomplish for us what no other king ever could. Right? This better king, he's not going to conform to the patterns of the world's rulers or to the ways of, of the kings who came before him. Right? He would not take from the people. Instead, he only gives to the people. And he would give at, at great cost to himself. He would come not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for his people, giving himself completely, giving his life completely for their good. And so the, the, the natural question that you and I need to be asking now at this point is, who is this king? Right? We know what kind of king he's supposed to be. We, we know that there's a king coming. Well, well, who is this king? Who is this king that promised that, that God promised to David? Who is this, this, this one through whom God will fulfill all of those promises he made to Adam, Abraham, and Israel? Who's this king who's going to reign and rule righteously, eternally, universally, and compassionately? We'll flip over to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is all, the Bible only needs one verse to do this. Recognize where we are in the Bible. Right, these are the very first words that I'm about to read to you in the very first book of the New Testament. And who does Matthew turn our attention to? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so, did you hear that? Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here he is. Here is, here is that king. Here's the one who's, who's going to descend from, from David's line as king and perfect son in order to fulfill the promises to Abraham and bless the world. That, that is what Matthew is screaming at us in these first, these, this first verse. All right, these opening words are an announcement of incredible fulfillment. He's holding up a microphone to his mouth right here and saying, hey, that promise that God made back to David in 2 Samuel 7, yeah, guess what? That promise is coming true. I've, the Lord is keeping that promise. It's fulfilled right here in Jesus Christ, that baby boy born in Bethlehem, that my gospel that this book is about to tell you about, he's that king that got, that's been promised. And he can Matthew just continues to announce this uh, and confirm this throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So later in chapter 1, Matthew is going to give special emphasis to Jesus' connection to David uh, in the genealogy. So verse, verse 6, um, we see a connection. And Jesse, the father of David the king, he's highlighting uh, the importance of David in this genealogy. Verse 17 does the same thing. So all the generations from Abraham 
to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation uh, to Babylon, 14 generations. So David's name is getting highlighted and drawn out uh, in this genealogy. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Notice how uh, Joseph is identified. Um, Jesus' earthly dad, verse, verse 20. But as, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, son of David. So Matthew's deliberately drawing out all these connections Jesus has to David as a way of, of confirming Jesus' identity as this long-awaited king. And then he's also going to uh, regularly identify Jesus as the Christ. And the Christ is the title uh, uh, that is given to God's anointed Messiah or Israel's king. Um, so as you read the rest of Matthew, uh, Jesus the Christ, that's how Matthew's going to highlight him. So from the very first page of the New Testament, very first page, very first words of the New Testament, we know who Jesus is, right? We know Jesus is the Christ, the king who fulfills those divine promises to Adam, Abraham, and Israel, and, and David, and who can save the, the, his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21. Right, so Jesus is the king, 2 Samuel 7. In fact, all of the covenants in the Old Testament has us looking for. He's that king. But if we still need convincing, you're still not convinced, listen how the elders comfort the apostle John uh, and identify Jesus uh, when no one is able to open the scrolls in Revelation 5. So Revelation 5, this is the last book in the Bible. Right, remember Genesis 1, we see God promising Adam a king who's going to rule over the world, over the universe, and now we're in the last book of the Bible. Revelation 5, 1 to 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne... A scroll, a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then listen, listen how Jesus, he too, describes himself um, in, uh, in the last chapter of the whole Bible. Last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22, verse 16, confirming what the elders just said about him in Revelation 5. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. All right, so you hear that? Jesus' own words confirming his identity as the king. And if this is true, if Jesus really is the king God promises to David, 
Adam and Israel and Abraham, then that means he reigns over all. And that means that he reigns over you and he reigns over me. And if that's true, then that means Jesus deserves and demands our total worship, our total worship. The problem is, is that we don't give it to him, right? We don't give it to him as we should. Instead, we've rebelled against him, right? We sin and, and we set ourselves against his good and perfect and eternal rule. And we deserve, uh, we deserve his justice and his judgment as the king for this, right? And yet the good news is that Jesus Christ uh, he comes to save us from our rebellion, right? Remember what Psalm 72 showed us about this king, about Jesus. He's a compassionate king who delivers those who cry out to him. He saves the needy from death and, and has come to rescue them from their oppression. And he does so by dying on a cross, right, in our place. And when he dies, ironically, uh, he has the charge uh, that hangs over his head there in Jerusalem that says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And yet this king defeats death three days later, right? And he walks out of that tomb alive. And now he calls all to repent and believe in him, right? And remember his last words, the disciples, as he's ascending into heaven in Matthew 28, right? All authority on heaven and heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? And if we repent, if we obey him and we, we submit to him in faith, then he saves us from his, uh, his judgment and we're welcomed into his kingdom forever. So, so don't reject his rule. Right? My plea to you this morning is don't reject the rule of this king. If, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, then you need to repent and you need to believe and you need to bow your knee to this Jesus, to this king in faith and repentance. All right, more important than just seeing that Jesus is the king, right, in the Bible, right, is actually knowing him as your king. It's actually bowing your knee to him and following him in faith. So if you're not a Christian, turn, trust Jesus. And if you are here and you are a Christian this morning, I hope that, that you see Jesus more clearly as your king and that you're more devoted to him and uh, you see his worth and the value of following him and trusting him. All right, that's all I've got for you guys. Um, so if, I know we went a little bit longer, so if you can uh, head off to your discussion groups, um, maybe spend 10 or 15 minutes going through some of those. Um, I'm gonna stick around. If you got questions for me, feel free to come and ask me. All right, thanks guys.